I'm Kyle McNulty, and you're listening to Secure Ventures, the show that follows cutting-edge founders in the cybersecurity space to understand their plights, glories, and revolutionary products. With me in this episode is Dan. Dan is the CEO and co-founder of CyberOwl, a maritime security company launched in 2016 from research performed at Coventry University. Before CyberOwl, Dan was at KPMG for almost 11 years, first in tax and later in strategy consulting. At CyberOwl, the team is building a comprehensive asset management and monitoring solution focused on the unique challenges that come with IT management aboard sea vessels. In the episode, we talk more about why the team decided to target maritime security, targeting a new customer segment via clustering, how they manage their product roadmap given aspirations to expand beyond maritime, and much more. Enjoy. Quick note from yours truly, I'm currently accepting new sponsors. If you're interested in learning more, you can check out the advertiser info sheet on the website over at secureventures.io, link in the description. Dan, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Let's talk about the origins of CyberOwl, because you had been working at KPMG for, I think it was around 10 years, and it wasn't specifically a cybersecurity role, to my knowledge, at least. Today, KPMG has a big cybersecurity services arm. That's where I came from earlier in my career. But you seem to be doing more strategy work and then pivoted into CyberOwl, where your co-founder, Siraj, was seemingly pivoting some research from Coventry University. So there's a lot to unpack there, but I'm curious, what did that process look like of the two of you coming together to form this super team, let's say? Yeah, well, actually, there's two other people in the mix. Um, it was really kind of uh, four people that brought this business together. Um, uh, there's a uh, our first chairman called Tom, and then our current CTO called uh, Ken Wogiran. Um And uh, Tom was actually the person that we all knew. Um, so he was the common denominator, as it were. Mm. Um, I was looking to... Um, uh, start something of my own or, or, or co-found something. Um, and up to that point, uh, yes, I was doing quite a lot of uh, strategy work, but it was primarily in the defense security and technology kind of sectors. And a lot of what I was doing was uh, working with the likes of uh, Northrop Grumman and Lockheed Martin and people like that in their European businesses, uh, really helping uh, them shape out some of their uh, sort of security and defense propositions, um, which is really how I got first introduced uh, into cybersecurity, um, more from the perspective of um, how to develop a proposition and service that fits the market rather than necessarily from uh, uh, a practitioner's standpoint. Mm. Um, but my sort of natural geekiness, I guess, um, uh, encouraged me to kind of dig deeper and deeper and deeper into it <laughs> um, and kind of got to uh, gain a lot of understanding of, um, of cybersecurity. I'm still a long way from being a, a, a practicing expert, um, but... Um, uh, yeah, that's kind of what enticed me to it. So Tom um, had been in discussions with Siraj about the work he was looking at, um, which was all around how to secure uh, remote operational assets, particularly in the defense space. And um, he felt there was real sort of potential to take some of that um, science and techniques and, and, and turn it into uh, spin it out of the university and turn it into a kind of a product and a business. 
Um, and Tom and I uh, knew each other from our previous work and um, he uh, asked me whether I wanted to come and uh, join the team to be a CEO and did the same with Ken and uh, both Ken and I said no for a long period of time and <laughs> I think it took Tom about six months to convince us and uh, the rest is history as it says. So walk me through that a little bit more because you're saying you had this time in your career where you knew it was time to, to go and start something, which I don't think is natural for most people who've worked in consulting for 10 years. So I'm curious about that element. But then even when you knew that you wanted to go and start something, you had this opportunity with someone that you knew and then still said no for at least a while and kind of refrained from, from making that leap. So what did that look like? What was the the rationale for wanting to go and build something and what was the rationale for why you were so hesitant to join CyberOwl at first? Well, I was doing the building of propositions and new market entry um, on behalf of many of the organizations I was working at as my, as my clients at the time. And many of these were in security and defense products um, or services or propositions. And so I felt that at a personal level, I was uh, developing the skill sets, the knowledge, the experience, etc., um, to go and build a new business effectively. Um, but the thing I didn't have really was the uh, experience of having those decisions. You know, me being fully accountable for those decisions. Uh, and living with the successes and failures of those decisions. Hmm. And so I felt the next natural evolution for me was um, either to continue down the path as being a consultant, always being one step removed from, you know, the full exposure for a decision um, and, you know, go and make a successful career of being, I don't know, a partner or a director or a managing director or something like that. Or take the leap to go and build something on my own. And I felt that, um, you know, conditions were right. But also my uh, my inner entrepreneur, I guess, was encouraging me to go down that path. And I felt that was a, an opportune time to, um, to go and build something. So I knew that was what I was going to do. Um, but, you know, when the opportunity was presented to me initially... Um, I felt that it was not going to be easy, and frankly, that has played out, um, turning science into product, product into business. And I had initial reservations around, um, you know, whether that was, uh, you know, as my first journey into entrepreneurship, whether that was... um, you know, those challenges were the right ones for me to face, if you like. Um, But the more and more I understood, you know, the technology, the approach, but actually more critically, the more and more I understood the guys that we were co-founding with, um, I think I began to realize that, um, you know, so much of how to make something a success is, um, first of all, the kernel of a good idea, but also the people that are aligned in their motivations to make something work, but that can also work together um, in a uh, in a way that allows challenge and collaboration, you know, at the same time. 
And uh, I think I found that in my co-founders and um, uh, that's what convinced me to, in the end, to take, um, you know, to, to give this a go. Hmm. Yeah, I'm sure most folks would agree with you in terms of the, the importance of team there and, and the sway that that, that founding team had in, in terms of getting them on board. But I want to dive back to the piece that you mentioned on this science into product element. And this is something we talked about a little bit before the show as well. It's just some of the, the challenges that came along with that. And one thing that we talked about previously was just the selection of the industry for maritime. And obviously, there's so many different applications of different cybersecurity products and, and use cases that exist and even potential parallels with maritime in terms of other uh, industries where there's a lot of remote, hard to access resources with limited network connectivity, and so on and so forth. So I'm curious, what did that that research, what was that research specifically focused on? And what did that pivot then look like to actually make it a product? Sure. So, so the research um, was all around detection techniques and risk quantification from the perspective of, um, or in particular for systems and domains where you had a huge amount of imperfect information. So um, the the use cases uh, that um, this was being developed for was things like operational assets in a battlefield, where you, uh, for various reasons like um, having to be in stealth mode or uh, not having the luxury of feeding back all the data into the central system, um, you needed to use... Um, this partial data and form some kind of view and decision-making around whether um, the risk has passed a certain level of threshold where it could no longer be tolerated. Um, and that's and so Siraj's work was looking at analytics techniques, approaches um, for how to use statistical analysis to be able to, to quantify a level of confidence around that risk. Um, and so, um, you know, it was particularly useful uh, to apply that in, you know, things like remote operational assets uh, that rely on, um, you know, things like satellite communications or where you've got intermittent con- connectivity or you've got fluctuating bandwidth um, uh, uh, setups um, and where you've got low bandwidth or limited connectivity within that time period. Um, you still needed to make uh, decisions around whether that you know there was risk or not, um, and um, and so you know you could apply that into a huge wide you know set of application right. spaces and use cases. Um, initially, we were looking at um, taking this into industrial IoT, um, and uh, but back then when we were just starting, you know it was still relatively nascent in terms of the wide application of security within industrial IoT. And a lot of the conversation was really about thinking at sort of chip level security and encryption around that, uh, rather than necessarily the use cases of monitoring and detection. Um, So um, we actually started by being sector agnostic, um, but then through a series of, you know, actually spending as much time as possible with the end customers and or potential end customers um, and market analysis and trend analysis 
um, we then discovered that the shipping sector um, was a really good beachhead market um, for us to get started in. That's kind of how we took that journey. Yeah, perfect background there. What was it about the shipping industry that made it such a good fit? Because there are so many companies today that are focused on broader industrial IoT. What was it that, that stuck out to you and the team about the shipping industry? So um, four factors. The first factor was that um, it was a sector that was traditional, by and large, left in an analog universe um, for a very long period of time. And it was a sector that was suddenly facing uh, the demand for digitalization. And um, in my personal experience, um, I'm always looking out for these sectors that have basically been trundling along, doing things as it always has been, um, and because I think these are sectors that are really ripe for disruption. And um, the research we did and, you know, in speaking to uh, tens and tens of uh, uh, maritime uh, organizations, I discovered that um, this digitalization and um, uh, this modernization um, was really coming in at a rapid pace um, and at a sudden pace, actually, rather than rapid. Um, and... I felt that was a real opportunity for us to kind of really focus in on it. Um, that came in at the same time as the second factor, which was there was a new piece of regulation coming in um, that was going to be effective from um, the 1st of January 2021 uh, that started to force shipping companies to consider cyber risk management within its safety management systems. Um, and so there was sort of regulatory impetus uh, to get this right as well. Okay, so those are the first two of the four factors that you mentioned, digitalization and policy, the regulation that you alluded to. What are the numbers three and four? Yeah, so the, the third factor was um, that the shipping sector is a huge sector. So I think the common statistic is that um, the maritime world uh, transports 90% of all the world's goods. So it's, it's huge. Um, but... It is also quite a closed sector where you've got these seven, 8,000 companies or so that sit within it that actually buy in sort of a very closed way. So figuring out the sales, marketing, go-to-market strategy in a sector like this uh, just sort of fascinated me. But also, you know, I realized that if we could crack it and we could actually break through into the market, there's a huge um, hurdle of competition for anyone else from the outside trying to break into the sector. Um, so it was, it was one that I, th I felt was worth um, exhausting energy and, and strategy into. Um, and the fourth one was the technology just fit really well. So the more and more we dug into it, you know, the, the analytics techniques, how that was, you know, how, that, how we developed that into the technology and the engineering um, just fit really well as a monitoring capability within the shipping world that, was constantly facing this intermittent connectivity, bandwidth constraint type environments. Um, and uh, yeah, so those four factors coming together made it the perfect market for us to, to start in. There's a lot we could drill into with every single one of those, but I'm particularly curious about your, your point around the closed community. Because typically, when I would think about starting a new company in, in a space, 
the idea of having it walled off seems very daunting to a founding team that maybe doesn't have deep relationships within that industry already. So can you speak to that? Did your team have a lot of these shipping relationships already in place? And if not, what was the the strategy to really become a part of that community instead of an outsider uh, trying to sell into it? No, we didn't have any shipping networks at all when we first started, um, which is actually uh, interesting to reflect on. Um, I've not been asked that question for a while. It's interesting to reflect on because I just did some analysis today um, and discovered that um, in terms of touch points, um, we have active touch points with nearly 40% of all the world's shipping companies. And so to go from having zero touch points to 40% <laughs> is, has been some interesting progress. But anyway, um, so no is the short answer. We didn't. Um, so um, this is where I guess my strategy background um, started to pay off. So um, it was a combination of a little bit of luck in terms of having completely by accident met a few uh, you know, key players in the sector, um, but also um, doing, frankly, some cold, hard analysis on it by just banging down doors to try to understand the structure of the, the, the sector. Um, so combining the kind of sheer luck of meeting a couple of, um, uh, sort of big shipping companies um, in this sector, I then started looking at, you know, who was the key um, shipping companies around the world. And one of the good things about the closed sector is I can literally name every single shipping company target in this sector because there are databases of this. So it's it's very easy for me to start with a long list. Um, what I set about doing then next was to work out from that long list, are there clusters effectively? Um, and uh, without giving too much of the secret sauce away, I discovered that there were clusters. You effectively had groups of shipping companies that, for lots of different reasons, worked in strong alliances and therefore then bought together, thought about things together, architected things together. And if I could then unpick one of them from each cluster, um, I could then open up that cluster. Um, and that became the kind of go-to-market strategy. Um, and um, we figured all this out relatively quickly in probably about two or three months of doing that kind of market research. Um, and when we figured that out, um, when we launched a product in 2019 um, and we'd figured that out, I thought, hey, if I could really make that work and open up these clusters and it's going to take other people a bit of time to figure, figure that out, then actually we have a head start. Let's give it a go. Um, six months later, we went from one customer to 10 customers. And I saw that strategy um, uh, sort of unfolding and really sort of proving true. Um, and then we kind of grew from there. Wow. I mean, fantastic strategy as far as the, the cluster piece. I also want to go back to the, the component that you mentioned earlier as far as meeting a few folks who happen to be very influential in the space and, and the luck that was involved there. I think a lot of people get the chance over time to interact with people who are influential in a space. But sometimes that's not the whole story where those people might not necessarily be uh, incredibly inclined to help and actually connect you with other people who are involved in the space. So what was it about the, the series of events that that you ran into where those folks that were 
so influential also had the desire to make your yeah, business I mean, you successful? Know, I think if you speak to every entrepreneur, um, lots of them will sort of say, yes, this, everything was by design and we wanted it this way. But the reality is that most of them will admit privately that a big part of it comes down to luck. So in our case, this was, this was, you know, this was luck. I happened to be speaking about um, the research techniques that Siraj had worked on um, at a small conference, and I even forget which one now off the top of my head. Um, and it just so happened in the audience, um, there was one uh, CIO of a shipping company that was sitting there. And this particular CIO was also a professor himself, um, you know, as part of his part-time job. So was already naturally inclined towards sort of more cutting-edge things or more innovative approaches to solving problems um, and was therefore open to trying new things. And as he heard me sort of describe um, the research, back then we weren't uh, we hadn't made the decision to go into the shipping sector yet. Um, and he, as he heard me uh, sort of describing it, after my talk uh, in the coffee break, he came up to me and said, hey, the stuff you were saying um, feels like it applies to the shipping world. Um, tell me a bit more about it. And by the end of that coffee, uh, we had determined that um, it probably did apply quite nicely within the shipping world and that it was worth uh, a shot. And then the difficult part uh, actually came from uh, or, or, or was the part where he had to then convince his people to try, um, you know, a new technique, as it were, with some two-bit startup company. Um, <laughs> and we were lucky that he did that. Um, and, um, you know, and then very shortly after, we, we happened to find another one as well. And it basically was from these two uh, early adopters, as it were, plus the sort of market analysis work that we did uh, and the combination of these two things that convinced us that this market was worth um, sort of uh, breaking into um, and, and, and really working at for a period of time. And I've got to say, it, it, you know, it, retrospectively, wow. it sounds like, you know, it was a, a good strategy at the start and then it just sort of was very easy from there. You know, and that's not, not, not actually true. You know, literally every <laughs> six months after that point, we, we went back to him and kind of go, are we still on the right track? Is this still the right sector for us to be doubling down on? Does it make sense? And we, we, we revisit it. I mean, we don't ask that question anymore. Um, but in the early days, we, we asked that question a lot. Let's talk about the clustering piece a little bit more as well. And I know you mentioned there's some element of secret sauce, so I won't make you go into to too much detail. But it also sounds like such an effective strategy and a unique strategy to what you were looking at and, and some of your experience. I'm curious, how much do you think that clustering strategy is effective across all markets versus being something that is specifically valuable in shipping because of the closed community, like you mentioned? Had you employed a similar clustering technique like this in previous industries in yes. your time at um, KPMG? So this kind of go-to-market strategy is very common in defense world, for example. So, um, you know, hmm. defense equipment is very much um, uh, centered around the platform. And in the case of the defense world, a platform is, for example, a jet or a, um, uh, a frigate, you know, a vessel or, you know, a tank, right? And all the bits of the supply chain that go into building a jet uh, effectively 
is the cluster that um, uh, you know culminates around the jet. And so, if you're selling something that can actually uh, add value to uh, a large part of that supply chain, then what you start to do, and an effective way to go to market, is to go right. What are the programs for fighter jets that are coming up? And if I look at the supply chain for that fighter jet program, who are the key players in that supply chain? Now I have my cluster. And actually, if the value proposition uh, also in particular adds value to the whole supply chain and not just to the individual links within the supply chain, the individual vendors within the supply chain, then you've got uh, a... Um, compound effect, you've got a kind of network effect because when you sell to one organization within that supply chain, it strengthens the whole supply chain. So it starts to make sense for the rest of that supply chain to buy from you as well. And that's fundamentally how that clustering strategy works, right? So I kind of saw it in defense. Um, and so I kind of understood how to apply it within the, the maritime sector. Obviously, the, the application within the maritime sector is, is, is slightly different. But I think, you know, if you're selling to any sector that has the characteristics of, um, you know, a long but very tightly integrated supply chain that has to work in harmony in order to deliver the ultimate sort of market outcome, then I think this kind of strategy does work within those sectors. And there are, you know, lots of heavy asset industries are like that. You know, the power and energy industries are like that. Um, so, so yes, I, I do think, I do think it is applicable elsewhere. Hmm. It's fascinating to also try to think about maybe where this might exist, even within software, uh, small little bundles of the market that are working so in tandem with one another that they become micro clusters, maybe not to the same scale as some of the, the industries that you just mentioned, but uh, it really is a, a fascinating kind of thought experiment to think about how that might apply elsewhere. So uh, appreciate well, well, you, you actually, sharing. Just, micro, just quickly on the micro cluster thing, Tyler, if you don't mind. Please. You know, part of the trick is to work out whether, when to apply this sort of clustering technique, because it, it's really, you know, it, it's, it's all cost benefit analysis, right? So if you put a lot of effort to conquer a cluster, you want to make sure that cluster is big enough as a market, right? So, so when you look at the term micro micro cluster, I think there is a tipping point when it's too micro um, to apply a technique like that, and 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 then clustering um, becomes less effective. So, um, I think that uh, finding that tipping point is quite important to be able to to think about when to apply this kind of technique. Yeah, it's a great point. And it comes back to the, the level of effort piece as well, right? Because if a micro cluster takes significantly less time to kind of penetrate and get involved with than the, the more macro cluster, let's say, uh, then maybe it has some value there. Um, so beyond the, the clustering piece, then thinking about some of the, the strategy that you already mentioned in terms of level of effort and penetrating specific markets, you'd mentioned that you still see shipping as somewhat of a, of a beachhead for CyberOwl as a whole and, and this technology and, and the research that was originally done. I'm curious, what are some of the challenges that, that you see or um, are planning to overcome as you think about the, the deep amount of time that you've spent getting to know all these suppliers in the shipping industry and then what it would take to go and apply that 
to a new industry with a product that has been so refined for yeah. this targeted okay. use case? So, at this point? Um, we apply something we call a rule of three. Um, and put very simply, and I am simplifying it here, the rule of three sort of does two things. The first is it says we're only going to develop or put something in our product roadmap or our service roadmap if at least three customers uh, in our current sector um, uh, wants the same thing uh, and wants to solve the same problem in the same way we're proposing. The second thing it does is it says we must also go and speak to another sector where there are also three people who want to solve the same problem in the same way. And that's our qualification process before we put that on the roadmap. Um, what that ultimately does is that it gets us to um, pick the problems that the customers are facing that are also translatable to a different sector. And it gets us to um, boil things down to core competencies, as it were. So in our particular case, um, our core competencies have become about being able to provide that visibility in remote operational assets. Um, so remote in terms of them being you know, geographically dispersed, in our particular case right now, moving even, um, operational insofar as these are systems that are not just traditional enterprise IT, but they combine, combine IT, you know, connected operational technology and often a hodgepodge of other IoT uh, on board the same uh, physical asset. Um, and uh, it's both the technology and the product that is, uh, you know, uh, optimized for these kinds of environments, but also our service model is optimized for these kind of environments. Um, and then the third thing is that um, it's generally assets where you've got a user that has to visit the asset or works with the asset, but that also suffers the operational consequence of a cyber risk. Uh, so in the shipping sense, you've got crew living, working on board the vessel. And if there is a cyber incident that you know leads to some kind of physical outcome, it is their safety on the line. So a lot of our technology choices, our service choices, are designed in such a way that it keeps that human operator in mind. So, um, you know, back to the kind of key competencies or core competencies, that's what we become good at. Now, if you think about that then, remote operational assets with a human operator, you can then start to see other sectors that have you know, very similar characteristics. And so if we stay true to those kind of core competencies, then um, uh, you know, the, the vision is that um, it, it will, you know, when we start to be ready to start to cross over into other sectors, those core competencies will become good. But the rule of three helps us make sure that we're not just imagining this in our heads, uh, that we're actually talking to um, prospects or potential users uh, that see the same problem. Completely makes sense from an expansion standpoint. I'm curious, have you run into scenarios in the past where different folks who 
are in the shipping industry and, and feel strongly about a certain feature that maybe aren't fully applicable across industries are then frustrated that you're not willing to develop something that's that's so focused for them, your current customer base? Yeah, all the time. <laughs> all, all the time. Um, you know, when we first started, you know, and we were keen to make sure we get as many customers as possible, um, you know, it's very easy to slip down the path of effectively being an outsourced development house, right? Um, and we had to put uh, more discipline in place, um, uh, you know, to make sure that we had a bit of a robust, um, you know, product roadmap and prioritization and selection process. Um, that's about being good at knowing what to do and what to do first, but equally being good at knowing what not to do. Um, and it's very hard. It's a very tough decision. And actually, sometimes it's a painful conversation with the customer. But what we find is that um, we set up our customers in a way that, you know, we, we get them to understand that upfront. You know, some of them, it takes them a while to get that. But, you know, we set that upfront and and, and um, we're pretty open to them, uh, with them about when we make decisions not to do something that they've asked for, and we try to explain why. Uh, so at the very least on our part, we've, you know, we feel we, we, we do what we can to help them understand uh, why that is. And, and, and ultimately, you know, it becomes about the fact that, you know, if we make the wrong choices, it may be existential for us. And if it's existential for us, Ultimately, at some point, we will have to decommission our systems on board their vessel, you know, their vessels or their assets. That's not great for them either. So, you know, um, making sure we make the right choices to help us scale, become a growing, sustainable business, directly correlates with our ability to service them in the long run. Um, and uh, you know, most of them get that. So, tying this research origins back to this product roadmap and, and feature roadmap that we're talking about. I'm curious, what are some of the the biggest challenges that arose over time as you tried to convert what started as an academic project into a real business product? I think the, the, the biggest challenge is about working out which bit of the science is sacred and which bit is not sacred and it's actually more the approach that's sacred so you know research projects are done within very very um controlled environments right so in these controlled environments you know because you're trying to prove a very specific set of problems it's very it's sensible for you to say um let's just remove some of this other noise um, because we're trying to prove this particular problem uh, or, this, or trying to solve this particular problem. Um, when you remove that noise from the environment, the domain, the setup, the systems, the configuration, whatever it may be, um, what you can sometimes lose sight of is that the noise actually becomes the key challenge in some cases because that configuration is the reality of a, a, a an asset that has legacy systems on it. And so you cannot simply remove that particular you know, configuration, that setup, whatever it may be, uh, and just go, well, if not for that configuration, then this will work beautifully. Uh, and so, so that's the biggest challenge, right? So working out which bit of it is sacred and which bit of it isn't. Mm -hmm. uh, and um, 
the, the, the really difficult part of that is to get over the emotion of being really attached to a certain piece of science, technique, analytic, you know, innovation, um, and say, we're going to have to discard that because this particular customer problem, um, you know, that particular innovation doesn't fit the problem space. That's the hardest bit. Once you can emotionally get over that, actually, um, things move a lot more smoothly. <laughs> it's funny how emotions keep coming up in the in the startup journey, one way or another. It's all the all the different things to get emotionally attached to, and, and overcoming those um, those those ties to make the the right rational decision, whether it's fundraising or product traction or pivoting or um, like you just said, the the science and selecting which pieces of the, of the product really belong. So ceremonial last question for you here on Secure Ventures. Are you currently looking for investment or hiring? Oh, we're definitely hiring. Uh, we're definitely trying to hire anyway. It's um, not very easy at the moment. Um, uh, and uh, in terms of investments, uh, we're not actively looking right now. Um, but, um, you know, we're always, uh, you know, I'm always having conversations just to um, find the right investor that can bring both investment, but also value to the business. So uh, I'm always looking for the investor that can bring value to the business um, and having a conversation about that. So uh, if there's anyone listening out there that, that feels they can help us um, really in two areas, I think the first is um, we've not really made uh, a particular conscious effort to um, uh, enter the uh, North American markets. Uh, so, uh, and I know there's a whole range of things to think about there. So, so that's one area. Uh, and the second area is um, where you've got an investor that can help us think about uh, how to start working with integrators rather than just the asset owners uh, and opening up the uh, you know networks techniques uh, you know business models uh, experience around that um, very uh, useful to have those conversations too perfect well thank you so much for your time Dan thank you thanks so much for listening to this episode you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and you can write to me at Kyle at secureventures.io I'm Kyle McNulty, and you've been listening to Secure Ventures.